0: Next Sunday, one of our missionaries, Steve King, will be with us. Uh, Many of you know Steve and his wife, Gail, who passed away now a couple weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, a couple years ago with cancer. Um, And so there's been a big transition in Steve's life and ministry, and he is now coming back to the States from the Ivory Coast, and uh, we have supported him for probably 25 years. And um, we him and his wife, Gail, did uh, have done tremendous work for the Lord in the Ivory Coast, in the Ivory Coast, starting churches, getting them into the hands of national pastors, starting a theological institute. And um, he said to me on the phone, he said, it's time I'm done here. The, The people can take it and do it. And it's time for me to come back. I believe he's looking to transfer into some spanish ministry uh here in the states we'll find out more about that next week when he's here so we look forward to hearing from him he'll be with us next week and um let's just of course that's a memorial day weekend and i know that makes you know a lot of things going on for a lot of people but um for those of you that are with us obviously it'll be a tremendous also i'm going to ask jacob and elizabeth to come up for a minute jacob and elizabeth parsons you can bring the kids too if you want. I don't care, as long as you're not changing a diaper. <laughs> Jacob and Elizabeth. We, uh, c- of course, Jacob grew up here in the ministry. Jacob went off to Bible college, and um, did work is doing work towards going into Bible translation work. A year ago, um, Emmanuel Bible Church ordained Jacob to the gospel ministry. Um, Jacob has been working, um, taking care of. Loose ends and debts and so forth from his schooling and Elizabeth's schooling, and then, Lord willing, eventually they're going to get um, perhaps to Cambodia, wherever the Lord will lead them to be to be able to do some Bible translation. But of course, Jacob's been over in Idaho Falls, working for his father, involved in the church there. Lord willing, we as a church, though, will eventually serve as their sending church as they go out onto the mission field. But Jacob and Elizabeth are moving up to Coeur Lane uh, to start another office with uh, your dad's business and be closer to the family up there as well. And so he's going to be leaving the area, but I wanted to have him come up here this morning because a lot of you are new. You will hear this name. This is who it is, okay? Put it in your, in your memory bank or take a picture with your phone if that's your memory bank so you can look at that so you remember to pray for these two. And um, so that, as we as a church, look forward to the day to continue to just help them on the journey and the road of ministry that God has for them, so Jacob, you step up here and you and Elizabeth, if you want to say, "Hey, hi, whatever to the church, you do that, and then would you just ask the Lord to bless the in the offering um, that will follow and just ask
1: the Lord a blessing on the service today. I'm Jacob, and this is Elizabeth. And uh, we just want to take the time to thank you so much for all your... I'm sorry? This is Evie. Oh, Evie. Evie is the little one. My son, Jack, is sitting in the back. Um, And we just want to take a second to thank you for your support and your prayers. And for those of you who have been praying for us and have been kind of watching what we're doing, um, we just want to give you a, a short update. We really not much has changed except for the fact that Cambodia has closed down to visitors and so we're praying that by the time we start deputation preparing to go to Cambodia that it starts opening up again Um, their main industry is tourism so I'm thinking that they probably will or else they're going to be in a little bit of trouble Um, we are moving up to Quarter Lane. the two big things that are really important to us is family and the ministry we try to balance those and we're working to have a good relationship with my family, but also get on the road to the ministry as well. Um, and like, like Tim said, we're just tying up loose ends. Um, is there anything that I to say, cover it, but anyway, thank you so much for your prayer and for your support. And if you have any questions about what we're doing or the future for us, just go ahead and ask us. We want to keep everyone as up to date as possible, um, with the future, but Lord willing, we'll be getting to deputation in Cambodia sometime in the near future, you know, as soon as we get things tied up. Um, And I'll go ahead and lead us in prayer before the offering and the service. Father in heaven, we praise you for your kindness always to us. We praise you that um, Elizabeth and I have had um, a good relationship with the church, and we praise you for the time and the fellowship that we've had here with everyone together. We pray now that you would bless the offering, um, bless all the directions it goes in the work of the ministry and the upkeep of the church. We pray that you would bless the service to follow, and that your hand would be on our hearts and on Tim as he preaches the word. We pray that your working would be evident and that we would know that you're here amongst us, being that we are grouped as a church We praise you for all the ways that you've blessed us spiritually, especially now in this time. We pray that we'd be rejuvenated to go about the week in worship and in obedience to you um, through this time we have together now. We praise you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.
2: Take our morning offering. I'm going to ask you to stand back up, and we will continue to worship in the song as we give this morning. Think about the sacrifice that it is in giving financially to the Lord, but also think about the fact that you're giving Him a sacrifice of praise through your mouth, because you're giving a sacrifice in that way as well. So, let's sing together. Before we start the next one, there is a red Chevy Traverse. It's on the parking lot uh, with its lights on. He
1: is exalted, the king is exalted
2: on high. Amen.
0: Take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 150, Psalm 150. Uh, last week we talked about worship. Having just finished in Romans chapter 8, and before we begin in chapter 9, I wanted to just insert a very short study, as I intend to do over the next several months periodically in the book of Romans, to just talk about uh, issues, the way we do things, why we do things the way we do them, etc., cetera, etc., cetera as a reminder for all of us who have been in this church for some time, but also as a just a teaching time for those of you that are new and um, for all of us as well. So this is much more of a teaching time today. As we look at some things, then it will be kind of a preaching message, uh, more instructive, although, Lord willing, there will be every element of what God does in a, in a message in our hearts as well, as He corrects us, as He instructs us, as He you know rebukes us and leads us down the road towards His righteous um, standards in our lives. We want to think about worship. So as I said, next week, Steve King will be preaching to us, and then the following week we'll jump back into the book of Romans, and we'll pick up in chapter 9. I want to use as a jumping off point today, Psalm 150. And I want us to look at this, we're going to do so fairly quickly again before we get into the larger discussion. Because I just want us to think about worship again. What it is, why we do it, some of the elements of it. The Psalter is 150 Psalms, which of course composed the ancient hymnal, so to speak, for the Israelite people, as they worship the Lord both corporately and privately. The songs that they sang, it begins with a tremendous psalm when he talks about the blessed man. Blessed is the man that does not walk in the way of the ungodly. But his delight is in the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. That person, he says, will be like the tree that is planted by the rivers of water. It brings forth its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. Whatever it does, it prospers. The ungodly are not so. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the godly, but the way of the sinner shall perish. He begins the psalms teaching us about what a life that is blessed by God really looks like. He ends it with praise. The last several psalms begin, praise the Lord. The last one begins the same way, praise the Lord. Now, notice what he says. Let's look at this psalm, and then we're going to just look at some real quick questions that grow out of this psalm as you read it, that He is answering. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him when you're out in His mighty creation. Man, we live in a good part to do that, don't we? Amen. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud, clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Notice in this psalm that we read, he begins by first of all telling us where we should praise God. Where? In his sanctuary and out in his mighty creation. So what is he saying? Everywhere. Everywhere you are. All of life should be permeated with a pursuit of reflecting back the glory to God that is due His name. That happens everywhere. I'm sure it's true of you. I know it's true of me. Some of the deepest encounters that I have had with the living God hasn't happened in here. It's happened up on a cliff somewhere at one in the morning looking at the beauty of what God made. And what happened in here maybe laid a foundation and a bedrock in my heart so that when I'm out in those mighty heavens, I'm not just there looking at Him like, wow, this is so great. No, I am there. It's like, this is so great because God is so awesome. So where? Why? Why should I praise God? Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. His mighty deeds, this is, in other words, what he's saying here is we praise God for what He has done and who He is. What He has done. What has He done? Mighty deeds. What are those mighty deeds? They are mighty deeds of redemption. All through the Scripture. In the Old Testament, the mightiest deed of redemption was when God brought His people out of bondage in Egypt. And people praised Him for the mighty deed that He had done in parting the Red Sea and in all those other things. But it was a work of redemption. In The New Covenant, the mighty redemption of Jesus Christ. Dying upon a cross to save sinners such as us, we praise Him for His mighty deeds. Now, He not only redeems us to save us from sin for eternity, but in many ways as we go through life, He redeems our souls from destruction and from the hand of the evil one. And we see His hand at work. We see His mighty deeds. And when He does, my friend, we must praise Him. His excellent greatness. This speaks of who He is. We praise Him because of His nature. He is God. How? How should I praise Him? In the next section of verses, he says, praise Him with a trumpet, praise Him with a lute and a harp, praise Him with a tambourine and a dance, praise Him with strings and pipe, praise Him with sounding cymbals, praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Maybe we could say there as well, kids banging pots and pans together doesn't sound like a lot of notes. It's just symbols. It's but out of the hands and voice of nursing infants even. He has perfected praise. What do we see here? He is basically saying we should praise God with all that I have and all that I am. With all that I have. Everything I have that I can offer to Him and all that I am should be devoted to praise to the Lord. Who should praise the Lord? Let everything, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Having said that, I want you to think about something. There is a moral imperative upon all of God's creation to praise Him. Let everything that has breath. There is a moral imperative. Two sets of the Ten Commandments, one table of the law referring to our relationship with God, one referring to our relationship with other men. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, everything that's in you. First four commandments relate to that. I would suggest to you to break this moral imperative that is placed upon us by our creator. To not praise God is the greatest sin that a man can commit. It is a big deal. when we neglect the worship of Almighty God, it's not just like, well, I just have my priorities right. Big deal. It's a big deal. He is a jealous God. I'm not just talking about coming to church. I'm talking about praising Him in His sanctuary and in His mighty heavens. When our life is not ordered, when our heart is not going out to God in such a way that all of life is lived under His hand and we are looking to Him and praising Him, we're in a bad place. We are committing before God the gravest sin that we can commit. And I would suggest to you it sets us up to committing all the others now having said that what we are talking about today is the nuts and bolts of worship here last week we kind of talked about the big picture we talked some about worship and now we're talking about more the nuts and bolts about what we do when we are in the sanctuary when we come here together to worship the Lord. It is a corporate gathering of the saints. That does not mean that unbelievers are not with us. I'm sure there's unbelievers in our midst. But it is a corporate gathering of the saints. And last week we talked about the big picture. We talked about how we exalt God. We edify the saints. We evangelize the lost and all those things. Today I want to talk more about the nuts and bolts. And the first thing that I want to just expose you to think about or have you think about is question one on the handout, a new bulletin, is this. Why do we call it a service? Why is it called that? Why is it called a worship service? Why don't people just call it a worship experience? Why does the church call it a worship service? Think about this. There are basically two Greek words in the New Testament that are translated to worship. One, proskuneo, just means to bow down, to fall before. The other liturgeo carries with it the concept of serving as a priest. So in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, he says this I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your body as a living sacrifice, wholly, acceptable to God. Which is a spiritual act of worship. It's a liturgale. We get the word liturgy from it. It is a spiritual act of worship. In Hebrews, it talks about bringing the sacrifice of praise to the Lord. We don't bring a bloody sacrifice to the Lord now, they did in the Old Testament. We bring the sacrifice of praise. The reason I want you to think about this is is important. When you come here as a Christian, you come as a believing priest to offer to God sacrifice and service. You're not just here to be either entertained or even to learn. You are here as a priest serving God. I want us to think about that. That just in the Old Testament, the priests went into a tabernacle or a temple and they offered sacrifice to God. They served Him. They took that very seriously, my friend. People died when they didn't do it right. When we come here in the New Covenant, we come into a worship service. And that's why you are here, I hope. So that literally, when you are singing to God, you are laying before Him sacrifice. Sacrifice of yourself. Presenting to Him yourself as a living sacrifice. That is wholly acceptable to God. It is your spiritual act of service. That's why we call it a service. You know, words are important. That's why it is called a worship service. Now, let's go on from that. Let's just ask ourselves another question. What should the church do when it gathers? Okay, if we're going to serve God, we're going to come together and we're going to offer to Him worship, a sacrifice, what should we do when we gather? And, and the way I want you to think about it is this. If you would, you know, if we could do the back to the future thing, we could get in that car and we could go back in time, and we could go back to a first century church service, and we are in Philippi, or we're in Ephesus, or we're in Antioch, and, and one of the apostles or, you know, some, some guy takes you by the hand and takes you into church, and you go to a first-century church service, what do you think it looked like? What did they do? Or let's jump forward, and you get to the fifth century, and you're in Alexandria, and you go to church. What did they do there, 12th century? Or let's say you have an opportunity to go to China, what are they doing in church in China when I was in Cuba? What did they do? Went to church a lot when I was in Cuba. Didn't understand a lot of it. I don't know Spanish well. What did they do? You would find that some things from the first century till today would be almost exactly the same you would also find that some things would be very different. If you went to China today, you would find some things were exactly the same. You would find some things were very different. Why? The reason I want us to think about this is to bring us into an understanding of what the church is to do. And then, what also the church is allowed to do. And to do that, I want us to think deeply here this morning about some very important principles. Okay, we're going to talk about what is called the regulative principle of worship. I don't want to lose you on this stuff. Stay with me. What is the regulative principle of worship? What regulates what we do? What should regulate what we do? Now, when we think about the regulative principle, these are my own definitions, but basically what we're saying is, and you'll see this in works of theology, corporate gatherings of the church are to be regulated by Scripture as to what is included and what is done. That would essentially mean this. There must be biblical warrant for what we're doing. And that warrant must be either an explicit command or it must be deduced by the necessary implication of the Scripture. That's what we're saying when we say this. The corporate gatherings of the church are regulated by Scripture as to what is included and what is done. Under the regular principles, churches that operate on the regular principle are going to say this, we can only do in worship what the Bible either commands or implies. There is another principle that churches operate under. You've probably never heard of these things, but I want you to know them because they are important debates that happen among Christians. It's called the normative principle. Most Lutheran and Anglicans operate their church life according to the normative principle, which was espoused by a guy named Thomas Hooker way back in England, you know, back just after the Reformation. The normative principle would say this, the church is free to do something as long as Scripture does not explicitly forbid it. Now think of the difference between those two principles. Regulative principle says what? We can only do it if the Bible commands it. The normative principle would say, you are free to do it as long as the Bible does not prohibit it. That sounds like a huge difference, and it can be. But I would say that as long as the essential element of these churches or any church Is an understanding of the authority of Scripture, generally you arrive at the same place, although not totally. And I'm going to show you, uh, I'm going to give you an object lesson. It is an important debate, but I would say, and this, this is what we're going to see, you're never going to find a place in the Bible where it implies that we can use a microphone, right? It's not there. Can we use a microphone? Now, some churches would say no. So there are certain things that we do functionally, don't we? There are other things that we do. They're not in any way determined pragmatically. They are determined upon the explicit command of Scripture, the authority of Scripture. I want you to take your Bibles, and I want you to go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want us to think about the authority of Scripture for just a minute. And there are many places that we could go in doing this. But 1 Thessalonians 2, there is a verse I want to draw your attention to that I think is an important verse in understanding this. Paul is talking to the church at Thessalonica. He is commending them for their faith, their perseverance, their growth, all the things that they have done. And he says something to them in chapter 2, In verse 13, that is very important. We thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, that you heard from us. You accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is. The word of God which is at work in you who believe. You can preach a whole sermon on that. But what I want us to think about is this. This book is not the word of men. It is the word of God. To disobey it or to disregard it is to disobey or to disregard who? God not a man, God Almighty. It is important we understand the authority of Scripture. The Word of God, to disobey it or to disregard it, is to literally disobey or disregard God. We've all disobeyed our parents at times. Not a good thing to do. But I will submit to you, To disobey or to disregard God puts it on a total different level. The authority of Scripture. Now, having said that, I want you to think about some things that other Christians through ages have said about this principle of the regulative principle of worship. Notice with me what the Westminster Confession says. The Westminster Confession says this. The whole counsel of God concerning all things that are necessary for His glory, man's salvation, faith, and life. The whole deal is either expressly set down in Scripture, or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added whether by new revelations of the Spirit or the traditions of men. That right there is the regular principle. Now, notice what they say at the end of this statement. This is the microphone. There are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the way the church is governed, That is just common to human actions and societies. They are ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence or wisdom according to the general rules of the word. And those rules are what? Always to be observed. What are they saying there? They're saying there are some things that are expressly laid out, and that we can understand by implication of the text, and there are some things that are ordered by wisdom. So, we decide what time we're going to meet for Sunday worship. Well, probably not six in the morning on Sunday. Why? Well, Jesus rose early in the morning. We should all eat, meet early in the morning to worship Him. Well, you know what? Probably none of us would be here. So, in Christian wisdom, we say what? Let's come at ten thirty. Why it works, works good for us. It's not an issue of biblical command. There are things like that. Now, let's read something in the, from the Institutes of Religion that was written by John Calvin. <clears throat> Stay with me here. I don't want to lose you on this stuff. This is important. The Master did not will in outward discipline and ceremonies to prescribe in detail what we ought to do. Because he foresaw that this depended on the state of the times. And he did not deem that one form was suitable for all ages. Because he has not taught anything specifically and because these things are not necessary to salvation and for the upbuilding of the church ought to be variously accommodated to the custom of each nation and age. It will be fitting, it's the advantage of the church will require, to abrogate traditional practices and to establish new ones. I admit that we ought not to charge into innovation rashly, suddenly for insufficient cause. But love will be best judged what may hurt or edify. And if we let love be our guide, then all will be safe. Do you see that principle at work there as well? So in these things, I wanted us to think about the importance of what regulates what we do when we come together. Now, let's just think about... I want to go and look at one... Okay, here's general guidelines, first of all. I would say that if we looked at it overall when we think about what we do when we come together as a church, number one at the top of the list is the authority of Scripture. And then we're going to say there are freedom within those boundaries. To govern ourselves according to the general principles of God's Word. In making decisions that will edify and promote unity among us. And will work for the times in which we live. Those are the general guidelines. Now... Let's just think about an object lesson. And I'll show you that. Okay, we say, that's really easy. Well, you know what? It really isn't. It really isn't. For instance, just think about one. Think about this one that brings up a lot of disagreement among Christians. Thou shalt not make unto thyself a graven image. On the back of the bulletin, I put that whole command. Thou shalt not make for thyself a graven image and bow down to it and worship it. That sounds pretty clear, doesn't it? What does that mean? So, what constitutes an idol? What constitutes worshiping it? Can a church building have religious art and symbol in it? How about a cross? How about a painting of Jesus? Is that a graven image? Ever thought about it? You know, Christians think about these things. (laughs) They do. Because we don't want to disobey that commandment. So what does it mean? When you come into a church, is it okay for there to be a cross there? Was that a graven image? Now, there are times clearly when those kind of things become graven images, aren't there? So let me just have you think about a couple things on this. Think with me about the Protestants and the Anabaptists. Because you'll see this big divergence in churches in America today. Amongst most Protestants they're going to look at things like symbols and art, and they're going to see them as supportive and instructive. But they're going to say, be cautious. You go to an Anabaptist church, and I'm not just saying Baptist, I'm saying Anabaptist, so this is bigger than just, an- than just the Baptist. Okay? You will find most Anabaptists, not most really all of them, free from any adornment because they don't want to put up a graven image. That's why, for instance, even like among the Amish people, they don't have what? Pictures and mirrors and all those things because they don't want to make a graven image. Is that what that means? See, this isn't very easy to wrestle with, is it? If somebody comes in to a church and they genuflect before a cross. What just happened? Is that idolatry? Is it automatically idolatry? Or can there be something in their heart that is not idolatrous? And how do you know? And what is the church to do? How is the church to govern itself? So let's go a little bit further in this and think about some things. And I hope you're still sticking with me on this. I told you this was going to be kind of teaching. I want to look at some general guidelines for worship. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I'm not going to read this passage for time, but I'm going to still take us to it, and you can be reading it as I'm thinking through it and pointing you to some stuff. When we plan a worship service, I'm going to say there's certain things that are very important in just a general way. We talked about some of this last week, but I want us to think about its importance as it relates to this passage. The first thing that I'm going to say is, notice the last verse of the chapter, verse 40. All things should be done decently. What does that mean, decently? Properly, it means in deference to one another, in good manners and in good taste. Decently. The church is to have manners in the way it treats each other and the way it worships God. We are to do things decently and what? Order. Earlier he says, God is not a God of confusion. He is a God of peace. He says that in verse 33. However, through this thing, it's very clear that there's also supposed to be some built-in flexibility because the Spirit may all of a sudden do something. And so what we see here is when we think about a worship service, the goal is, is to order the service in such a way that there is a structure. There is a flow. There is an order. Things are done decently. But there is also a flexibility. To what the Spirit may do. Second thing, general guideline, is sensitivity to constraints. Biggest one being time. When you read through this, it's, you know, he's talking about how many people in one service can speak. He says, let there be two or at the most three. Why? Why does he say that? Because if you go longer than that, people are checking out and they're ready to leave. Right? In other words, he says there should be a sensitivity to constraints. And he says the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. Just because the spirit tells the prophet something doesn't mean that that person has to speak. He can keep his mouth shut because now he is being sensitive to what God is doing and for others. So there is a sensitivity. You know what, you've heard this before. The mind can only absorb what the seat can endure. You know, you sit there too long and you're, you're listening to it. I mean, eventually, you're just done with it. has to be sensitivity. Now, in some cultures, a church service can go three hours. At certain times, in American history, services did. Doesn't happen that way now. So there is to be a sensitivity to the constraints. There is serving of one another as we grow. Notice what he says at the beginning of this section. At the end of verse 26, he says this, let all things be done for the building up of Christians. Let everything be done. Let everything that's going on, everything that is happening is for the purpose of building up the faith of the believer. And so we serve each other as we grow. And then the last one is, you know, self is on the shelf here. God is to be on the throne, and then others are the focus. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about God and others. I still remember when I was a little tyke, on Sunday evening in the church I was raised on, Sunday evening they had this kids program, and they called it joy. I don't know who came up with it. It was called joy. And the little acronym was Jesus Others You. You get that right, you got joy. If you put Jesus first in your life, you put others second, and you are last, God will give you joy. You put yourself first, you're a miserable person. Right? We're miserable people. It's Jesus Others You. That brings joy. I was probably four years old. I still remember that one. I don't remember who taught us, but I do remember that. So here's the question. What do the Scriptures stipulate that we do? When you come to church, what are we to do? What is taught clearly in Scripture that we must do? Okay? Let's look at a few of them. There's only a few of them, and let's go through them. The elements of a worship service that are wedded together are prayer, praise, scripture, preaching, the sacraments, the ordinances. Now, you could add one, although it would be somewhat debated, and that is the offering. It is clearly commanded to the church to give, but can you find in Scripture an implicit or explicit command that it happens on Sunday morning in the worship gathering of the church? Christians will debate that. So I didn't put that one in the list. I'm going to put it more on the functional side. If you do your giving as an act of worship and you do it through PayPal... I'm not saying you missed out on what you're supposed to do on Sunday morning, but if you don't give and you refuse to give, you are withholding from God something he does command. Functionally, we have an offering on a Sunday morning. It works well. It is an act of worship, but I'm not going to say it is commanded in Scripture to be a part of a worship service. Some churches don't include it. Now, having said that, let's think about what we do. Prayer. We pray. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Remember when we studied First Timothy? First of all, let supplications, prayers, thanksgivings be made for all men. First of all, of first importance. That's why I put it on the top of the list. The most important thing we do as we begin our gathering is we pray. That is not just so you have time to find your seat. That is not time you know, just so you can shift around in your seat and make sure the kids are where they're supposed to be, although that's maybe what you have to do. Why we do that specifically is to unite our hearts and to ask Almighty God to be present with us to bless us. We pray in the service. We pray at the end of it. We want to saturate the prayer of the saints into the service. We praise Him. We praise Him as we sing, but we also sometimes praise Him as we testify. When we take a prayer request or other things, we give praise to Him. Praise is not just singing. Singing is a subset of praise. There are more ways to praise Him than just to sing. But I will say to you, if you can never find it in your heart to want to sing His praise, there is something wrong. There is something wrong. You may not have a good voice. You may not even like to sing. I like to sing on the tractor. I may not like to sing everywhere, but I do like to sing on the tractor. I like to sing His praise, and I like to praise Him in here. Even if I don't have a good voice, that's not what's important. You may not even know the song. You may not even like the song. You may not like the tune. But when you look into the words and you specifically are singing them, not thinking about other people that are around you, but you are singing them to Him, that is when true praise happens. Scripture. We do scripture reading. First Timothy chapter 4 tells us to do so. There is a command to read the scripture. We not only take it and preach it, we read it. Preaching. What is preaching? <clears throat> the only two places you go to get preached at is church or when you go home to see your mom right? <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, what is preaching? I mean, you, you don't go anywhere else in your culture and hear a sermon. You go to school and you get taught. What is preaching? If you were to define preaching, what is it? It is a, it is a form of public speaking, but it is very unique, isn't it? It is the exposition of a text. It's not just a speech. Politicians give speeches. Preachers don't. They expound a text. The preaching of the Word of God is the taking of the Word of God and simply laying it in front of the people of God and saying, this is what God said. It's not a speech. It is a text that is developed. The sacraments, the ordinances, there are two of them, baptism and the Lord's table. Here again, there is some disagreement amongst Christians as to how often or when these things should be done. There's a lot of debates among Christians about when baptism should be done. There's a lot of debate among Christians about when the Lord's table should be done. Some churches do the Lord's table every week. Some churches do the Lord's table once a month. That's what we do. Some churches do the Lord's table once a year. There's not a specific command in the Scripture on when to do it or how often. He only says in 1 Corinthians 11, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. So, what's the goal? The goal is to glorify God. Our goal, when we come together on a Sunday morning, I say this often, I say this to you, I want us to picture it like a family meal. We're coming as a family, the family of God. The whole thing is not about just building to a climax of a sermon and invitation. When you come to a meal, there are various courses that are set in front of you, aren't there? First of all, you start with the appetizer, and then you go to this, and then you go to that, and then you end with the best part, kids, dessert, right? But each course comes before you and is to be enjoyed for what it is. And then you move to the next course. It's not just about moving through the thing, like the whole thing with preliminaries and it builds towards the preaching. The whole thing is a part of a meal when we, the children of God, come together to be spiritually fed and to engage our hearts in worship to the Lord. And every part of the service should be enjoyed and participated in for what it is. And then we move to the next And so he says, there is a moral imperative upon us as the people of God. Let everything that has breath, praise the Lord. So over the last two weeks, we've just tried to think about some areas of worship. We didn't get down into like some of the fine points of this and that. We just tried to look at the big picture to think about some of the aspects of why we do certain things and what some of the debates among Christians are on these things. And I hope that you'll just take this and you'll think a little bit deeper about it on your own. If you have any questions, please come and talk to me and um, we can continue the conversation. But Lord willing, as we think about these things in a couple weeks, we're going to have another meeting in Sunday school hour. And uh, if you would like to participate in, maybe you're new to the church and you'd like to participate in some of the music ministries of the church or other things that are a part of the worship service, being an usher, uh, being a greeter, uh, we want to just offer you that opportunity. But before we had that meeting, I wanted to present these messages so we would think about some of these things. Just so close in a word of prayer, and then Matt's going to come and lead us in a song, and we will close our worship of the Lord together today. I hope you can come again tonight down to Cowboy Church. We'll have a good time there as we fellowship and study the Word and just have a good evening uh, as as a body. Lord, we thank you for your care, your many blessings in our lives. We thank you for your mighty deeds, and we thank you for your excellent worth. And Lord, as we praise you this morning, we come before you with gratitude for the redemption that you have brought our way through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Thank you, Lord, for faith. Thank you for your spirit that moves within us. And we pray that you bless us in the service as we go forth from here in Jesus name amen
2: would you stand as we sing our closing song together Jesus But something that you have given us. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be conduits of worship. For worship, Lord, isn't simply singing a song, but it is how we live our lives. And so as we go out, Lord, we are to worship you all the time. Lord, help us to be obedient to that calling. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.